Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I don't know why we call it a mouse. Sometimes I apologize. It started that way and we never did change it. Y'all know what a mouse is. It's so common that you probably don't even think that much about why it's called a mouse. But back in 1968, the man generally credited with the invention of the mouse, Douglas Engelbart, had to apologize for what was certainly a silly name. So how did we get here? Why do most people associate Steve Jobs, not Douglas Engelbart, with the mouse? And why did this form factor prevail over others? Let's help you know a little more about the computer mouse. The closest relative to the computer mouse is probably the trackball. Heck, some of you probably prefer a trackball to a mouse. You might be using one right now. The first trackball was developed in 1946 as an improvement for fire control radar plotting systems, military stuff. Uh, Something called the Comprehensive Display System, or CDS, calculated the future position of target aircraft based on inputs provided by a user with a joystick. You just had to move your joystick around to give the X and the Y coordinates. British Royal Navy scientist Ralph Benjamin thought that the joystick was a bit clunky. Great for flying an airplane, maybe, but not so precise when you're trying to plot coordinates. So he whipped up a prototype of a metal ball that rolled on two rubber-coated wheels. The Royal Navy patented that device right quick and then classified it as a military secret. And that prototype was the only one ever made. In 1952, British electrical engineer Kenyon Taylor created a similar input device for the Royal Canadian Navy's Digital Automated Tracking and Resolving Computer, or Dater. It used a Canadian five-pin bowling ball and four discs to pick up motion and send X and Y coordinates to a digital computer. Not exactly portable, but it worked. That one was not patented but it was classified as a military secret. Both these examples of the first trackball shared the idea of trying to make it easier to deliver X and Y coordinates, but those were fixed in one place. I mean, one of them was a bowling ball. It would take another decade for somebody to develop a movable pointing device. 
Now, those of you who listened to our episode about the mother of all demos already know that Douglas Engelbart was inspired by Vannevar Bush's essay, As We May Think, about the Memex, a machine that could process human information. And Engelbart set about making Bush's ideas real while at the Stanford Research Institute, where he established the Augmentation Research Center, or ARC. Engelbart and his team developed almost all the things you think of when you think of a modern computer. Touchscreens, video conferencing, hypertext, and of course, the mouse. He was inspired by something called a planimeter. It's a tool first developed in the 19th century to measure the area of something by tracing its perimeter. Uh, If you've never seen one before, and you probably haven't, it's a big L-shaped thing. It's got two arms and and kind of a, a wheel that connect the two. One of the arms stays put, and the other moves around so you can trace the perimeter of something. And that wheel has a mechanism in it that will count out the measurements. Engelbart wondered if he could adapt some of the principles of the planimeter to input X and Y coordinates to a computer. On November 14, 1963, Engelbart jotted down some notes about something he called the bug. It would have, in his words, a drop point and two orthogonal wheels. Basically, if you think about it, that's kind of a small planimeter on wheels. It would be an improvement on a stylus because you could let go of it and it would stay right where you left it. But it wasn't Engelbart alone that would make this into a real thing. In 1964, fellow Navy alum Bill English joined Engelbart's lab. He helped turn Engelbart's notes into a working prototype. The principles for its operation are quite easy to see. You'll turn it over, Don. Its principle is that there are two wheels that roll on the surface. But since they're at right angles and kind of sharp edges, one roll and the other slide in one direction. Each of, it, each of these wheels controls through potentiometer with a voltage output sampled by an ADD converter. The numbers taken in by the computer at sample times as to what the horizontal vertical components are to be of where it should put the tracking spot. And as the mouse moves over a surface, then each of those wheels either slides sideways without rolling or rolls an amount that very closely duplicates the particular component of horizontal or vertical in the net motion it makes. Those two wheels, he mentioned, were perpendicular to each other, one for the x-axis, one for the y. Each wheel was connected to what he called just now a potentiometer, a fancy name for a transistor that can vary its voltage output. The variance was tied to the rolling of the wheel, which could be measured to estimate where the device was and translate that into a coordinate system on the display. Move the mouse, the cursor on the screen moved in the same manner. It was a boxy thing, but it did have the tail, the wire that connected it to the computer. Originally, it came out of the front, oddly, but it was that cord that led people to think it looked kind of like a mouse. And for some reason, no one seems to remember why, the cursor on the screen was referred to as CAT, C-A-T. So it was too perfect. You're not going to call that thing bug. Sorry, Doug. It's a mouse. But the mouse wasn't the only input device Engelbart, English, and the ARC team were working on. In fact, it wasn't even their favorite. There was a joystick, classic at this point, a knee control, a touchscreen called the Graphicon, 
and the darling of the team, the light pen. You pointed it at the screen. It was so easy to pick up and use, so intuitive. Almost everyone on the ARC team thought, the light pen, that's going to be the one most people prefer. As it happened, NASA's Bob Taylor, at the time, was working on flight control systems and looking for new ways to make computers more useful. And a light pen sounded like maybe it would be perfect. So he got funding authorized for Engelbart's team to prove that the light pen was the best. Bob English and Bonnie Huddart led the study. The team developed a series of tasks and timed volunteers doing various things with the various input devices. So things like moving a cursor on a screen to a random position. Which one was the fastest? And the light pen did well. In fact, among inexperienced computer users, people who didn't know how these computer things worked, the light pen did the best right right next to the knee control because they were easy to understand just by using them. You got how they worked. But for experienced users, people who knew how computers worked, the mouse outperformed all the other options by a good amount. And that test led to the first occurrence of the word mouse in print to refer to a computer input device. English Engelbart and Huddert co-authored a report on these experiments for NASA called Computer-Aided Display Control. It mentioned the mouse 26 times. The first reference that wasn't in the table of contents was on page 14. Here's what it said. Within comfortable reach of the user's right hand is a device called the mouse, which we developed for evaluation, along with others such as light pen, graphicon, joystick, etc., as a means for selecting those displayed text entities upon which the commands are to operate. So the mouse was in use, and it had been proven to be a superior way of controlling a computer. All that remained was to let the world know. But Engelbart wouldn't show off his work to the general public until 1968. Which means he got scooped by a couple of months. Unbeknownst to Engelbart, in 1966, engineers at Germany's AEG Telefunken began work on an input device that could send X and Y coordinates to a display. Theirs was shaped like half a sphere and used a 40-millimeter diameter ball with two mechanical transducers to detect positions. That's right, the familiar ball mouse, the mouse ball, wasn't made by Engelbart. You can credit that to Rainer Malibrin. As we mentioned earlier, one of the problems with the early trackballs was they were big. They had to be fixed in place. Telefunken had one. They made one for Germany's Federal Air Traffic Control. Malibrin had the idea of reversing the trackball. Turn it upside down. Then you could roll it around and make it movable so you didn't have to worry about where to mount it. On October 2nd, 1968... AEG Telefunken published a brochure showing off an optional input device for the SIG-1000 Vector Graphics Terminal. They called the device Rollkugel Stuhlrung. Apologies for my German pronunciation. It's German for rolling ball control. They were a little expensive, but they ended up at about 20 universities, as well as at the Leibniz Supercomputing Center in Munich. Even so, Engelbart, a couple months later, still got to make a splash with his mouse in front of a crowd. 
and his team gets bragging rights for the name. This episode is not, after all, called About the Rollkugelsturm. On December 9th, 1968, Engelbart showed off his mouse during what would later be called the mother of all demos. Bob English was instrumental in helping Engelbart with that demo. He's credited with figuring out how to connect the SRI lab 30 miles away at Stanford with the Civic Auditorium up in San Francisco. But again, if you listen to the Mother of All Demos episode, you know, while it was impressive, it didn't directly lead to anything. So slowly, after that high moment, members of the lab began to head off in pursuit of their own interests. In 1971, just a year after the patent for the mouse was granted to SRI, Bill English left SRI. He didn't go far. If he'd walked, it might have taken him about an hour. If you leave Stanford and head down El Camino Real, take a right on Stanford Avenue, then a left on Foothill Expressway, you'll find yourself at the Palo Alto Research Center, or PARC. These days, it's just called PARC, and Oddly enough, it's part of SRI International, so you would just be going from one part of the organization to the other. But that wasn't true in 1971. In 1971, it was a different place. It was better funded, and it was called Xerox Park. English managed its office systems research group, and he borrowed that ball idea from Telefunken to create a mouse for Xerox. It was part of the legendary Xerox Alto, which was released in 1973. Alto was the first desktop computer to use a graphic user interface and a mouse. And it was wonderful. Following the Alto, ETH Zurich shipped its Lilith computer with a version of a mouse as well. But the one most computer folks of the time will remember was the mouse that came with the Xerox 8010 Star the Xerox Star personal computer of 1981. I mean, if you had the $16,500 to buy one, you loved it. It became the best-known computer with a mouse up until that time. But the mouse was still an obscure device. Jack Holly manufactured the mouse for Xerox and said eh, he pretty much had the market to himself at the time. Competition did arrive, if slowly, Logitech, probably the top mouse brand in 2023, showed off its first mouse, the P4, at Comdex in 1982. Microsoft made Microsoft Word mouse compatible that same year, and then shipped its own mouse a year later in 1983, the first product from Microsoft hardware. Apple's ill-fated Lisa, its first attempt to replicate and modernize the Xerox Alto, came out in 1983 with a mouse. But the Lisa is kind of a legendary flop. It was January 30th, 1984, that changed the course of the mouse. What we think we've done is we've gotten us back on the track of letting us bring this technology, not just to people that have them hooked up to these big blue boxes in Fortune 500 corporations. Sure, we want to sell those, our products to those people. But what we're really doing, the reason we're doing what we're doing, is because we want to bring this to tens of millions of people. Apple's Macintosh did a lot of things right, including the mouse. Remember that study back in 1965 that found the mouse was best for experienced users? My name's Ronnie Seabach, and I wrote the mouse lesson that you get on your Mac guide and the font mover. The Mac wasn't meant for experienced users, so they built in a guide to get you up to speed. It was so important that Ronnie Sebeck 
the person who wrote the guide was up on stage with the engineers of RAM and circuit boards and all that kind of stuff during the announcement. That made the mouse mainstream. Now, over time, the mouse lost much of what made it mouse-like. Both Stephen Kirsch and Richard F. Lyon independently created an optical mouse in 1980. So you didn't need that mouse ball or wheels or anything. First with LEDs and later with lasers, the optical mouse replaced the need for the ball to detect position and eliminated the need to pull the ball out and clean it, sometimes by inadvisedly popping it in your mouth. Raise your hand. Yeah, I know. The mouse lost its tail, too. First wireless mouse came along in September 1984. Logitech made the infrared mouse for the Metaphor computer. The Metaphor computer was made by a couple Xerox Park employees, David Little and Donald Massaro. Infrared needed line of sight, though, so it didn't catch on right away. But RF and later Bluetooth would make the wireless mouse mainstream. And these days, there's a seemingly infinite variety. Pucks, force feedback, tower-like ergonomic forms, and so many more. Even the number of buttons has changed. Engelbart's original prototype had one button. The one he demonstrated in 1968 at the Mother of All Demos had three buttons. The Alto had one with three buttons. Microsoft's mouse had two. Apple went back to one. And today, a mouse usually has one or two main buttons, but also scroll wheels and side buttons and programmable buttons and more. But at base, they all work the same way. Detect movement in two dimensions and then translate that into data that a display can use to replicate that movement with a graphic on screen. Now, people talk about Engelbart not making money. Um, Engelbart got a $10,000 lump sum payment from SRI for his patent. English didn't get rich off the mouse, though. He, he didn't retire on his mouse money. After leaving Xerox in 1989, he worked for Sun Microsystems for years. And what about Bonnie Huddert, the other name on that report that first mentioned the mouse? She left SRI shortly after its publication and became the first director of the Computer Center at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. The only one that made much money off the mouse wasn't a person. It was SRI, which held the patent. That patent was granted in 1970 and expired in 1987. But even SRI didn't make a lot. Xerox, Microsoft, and Apple all licensed the mouse patents from SRI. And the generally held belief, at least Engelbart said it was this much, is that Apple paid around $40,000 for its license. Probably the same for Xerox and Microsoft. But there's no definitive record. So suffice to say, it wasn't a lot of money, considering how transformative the mouse would become. But that's not why Engelbart did any of this. He wasn't trying to make a bundle of money. Heck, he wasn't even trying to invent the mouse. He, in his own words, felt like he was trying to make the world better. In 2008, he spoke to a crowd at Google as part of a panel called Inventing the Computer Mouse. And he talked about how he got started developing technology like the mouse. Then it came out to finally realizing that the world's problems were just really, really very complex. And what would be very, very valuable is if we got better, better ways for us collectively to understand the scope and nature of the problems and the potentials for the solution. I'd argue that the mouse has played a pretty pivotal part in making the world better. And I hope now you know a little more about the computer mouse.
Know a Little More is researched, written, and hosted by me, Tom Merritt. Editing and production provided by Anthony Lamos in conjunction with Will Saddleberg and Dog and Pony Show Audio. It's issued under a Creative Commons Share Attribution 4.0 international license. Dog and Pony Show Audio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 